Thank you, Jeffrey and the team. What a joy to be able to worship like that. Oh, so good. Remember when Jeffrey was just a little kid. Look at him. Look at him now. Look at him. Remember when he was a little kid? Who remembers Jeffrey when he was a little kid? He was cute. He's still cute. But now he's leading the flock in worship. That's beautiful. What a good time. Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15? We're continuing this glorious journey through the gospel of Mark, being reacquainted with Jesus. And Walt, did you do that Ray Jr. quote this time? You didn't second service. You left me hanging there. I wasn't there for you. Could you be consistent, please? Like, I would never vary from what I do from sermon to sermon. So when you go rogue like that, Walt, it throws me off. Um, As you all heard, I'm told, in uh, the offering announcements, uh, there's an ordinariness to the church. Yes, that shouldn't surprise you. Yeah, there's an ordinariness to Jesus that made some people angry when he claimed to have messianic authority. So that is such an important idea that when you come to Christ and the Christian life, you have to load into that a massive appreciation for ordinariness, just life in the mundane, normal life. And sometimes when we're in the midst of God's glorious creation and his work, we can miss it because we're just so present with it. C.S. Lewis referred to himself as a reluctant convert. And he compared his late-in-life conversion to Christianity to the first time he went to Cambridge. He had heard all these things about Cambridge and its glory and beauty. And he got off the train, and it seemed really dirty and normal, like just any old other city. And it failed his expectations. And so he said, I must not be there yet. And so he just started walking, and he walked and walked, and he finally realized he was at the outskirts of the city. And he turned around and looked back at the city and its skyline out on the horizon, and he saw these beautiful cathedral spires. And and he saw the beauty of a city that required getting a little bit of distance from it to see it. And he compared that experience with his later-in-life conversion of, of being so in the midst of all these Christian things his whole life, he never saw the beauty of it for the normalcy of it all. And that has been a theme of the book of Mark for me. I I hope you've been catching that, but God, throughout this gospel, is demanding that we change our perspective on on what we think glory looks like and what we think majesty must be like and what uh, goodness and what God actually working must look like because we come to God and his work with all sorts of intuitions and preconceptions and ideas and hunches and thoughts and often God's defying those. And it makes sense that that's the case, doesn't it? Because we're fallen. And we're constantly suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and getting it wrong and convoluting it. So when God speaks to us, we should just expect it to defy our expectations. 
We should go to God's word seeking to be corrected because as we've seen through the book of Mark, glory for God looks very different than glory for the world. Boy, do we see that in this morning's passage. Mark chapter 15, Jesus won his victory in the garden over temptation to have a crown without a cross. The reason we named this series the king and the cross is because this king goes to the cross. This king dies a shameful death on a cross. And these two must go together. And that's at the heart of what God wants us to see in the book of Mark. And yet again, here we see it at work before us. Let's pray. As we go to Mark 15, I'll pick it up at verse 1. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. Help us to change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, the way we trust because of this amazing passage this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 15, 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. I bet it took a lot to amaze Pilate. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. What an interesting insight. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own, clo- his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Wow. Well, uh, we have got to learn to see things God's way if we're going to see the glory of God in this Savior. This is not how I would have planned it. This defies all our expectations on a human level. And that's the first thing I want to talk about, a human level. You could summarize all our problems. Is my mic cutting in and out? Just sounds like that to me. My ears are cutting in and out. (laughs) I knew that would happen once I was in my 50s. Um, So I'm sounding fine to you. Good to know. Um, I won't be distracted by that apparent problem anymore because it's just an apparent problem, which relates to what we're talking about. Sometimes appearances are not reality. A lot of time that's the case. That's a good insight there. Um, So what we're thinking about here is worldly ways of thinking and of doing things. Alistair Begg summarizes those worldly ways as Rome, religion, a robber, the rabble, or Jesus. The Redeemer. He has some nice, five nice R's there. I thought it more helpful to do it this way. I'm probably wrong. But I think the ways we need to think about are politics, piety, popular opinion, and rebellion. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't find a P there. Um, but it's, it's true. It's It's those four ways I want to think about first. Those are very insightful. We have those four ways of approaching life and reality in this passage. The first is politics. This passage is loaded with the political, isn't it? Starting with Rome, the political context of the whole story. We've got Rome bringing about the Pax Romana, taking over countries and then letting them basically practice their ways as long as it didn't usurp Roman authority and letting them carry on. And that's what the Jews basically got to do. And so we've got this massive advance of Roman authority, Roman government, and Pilate represents that political perspective. He wants to manage these people. He is clearly annoyed with this job. When we put the gospel picture of Pilate together, he's not happy with this assignment. He must have done something wrong to be put on this little backwater area of the world overseeing this really annoying people. And and it's infected the Romans to the point where they treat Jesus this the way when they don't really have a good reason to do that. They just hate the Jews. They do. They're profoundly anti-Semitic. They're they're profoundly uh, weary of this people who have all these beliefs that are so strange to them. And here's Pilate representing Roman authority here. And he's clearly politically motivated, is he not? It's obvious. He, He knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. But still, he uses his authority to murder him in spite of the truth. Why? 
politics. <laughs> keeping things managed politically. Keeping his position, keeping this people he's watching over under control. He's politically motivated. He's not motivated by truth, by righteousness, what's good. We've got the politics of the religious leaders here. They're politically motivated. They're not in control like Pilate or Rome, but they, in this context, have taken on a lot of importance, a lot of power, a lot of influence and authority. The religious leaders in the Jewish context here are really important people, and they like it that way, and they don't like the way Jesus is affecting their political status, their position before the people. The way things are running is going along in a way they like, and they don't like that Jesus is messing with that. And we see over and over again the tragic reality of the religious people, the ones who know the most, missing the point and missing the Savior and missing, like so often happened throughout the history of Israel, the true prophets of God who come speaking for God, and they miss it and reject him and kill him. That's what's happening here. The religious leaders are in direct opposition to the very things of God. The ones who should be leading the way toward God are opposing God in his ways. Because for political purposes, politics, it's all about the political realities here. If you think getting things politically situated is the key to health, happiness, wholeness, society, if you think that's the ultimate you're wrong. And all you need to do is read history to see it. We went to China to pick up Isaac, our fourth child, in January, and it was fascinating to be in China and knowing something about communism and knowing something about Chairman Mao and the untold horrors and evil that that thinking and that man perpetrated and his picture is displayed in Red Square, and, and he's had a pervasive influence, Chairman Mao has, and his little red book can still be found all over the place on how we're supposed to think, and people dress the way he did and in a uniformity, and he had this massive influence. And I made it one of my goals while I was there to talk to a lot of Chinese people and get one of them to say something bad about Chairman Mao. And I couldn't. I tried. Even people who'd studied in Chicago, the university, I would say, so what do you think about Mao? Oh, he's our, he's our leader. Yeah, I know. Well, what do you think about him? Oh, he's a, he's a great, great man, very influential. I know. Is there anything you don't like about him? Oh, well, no, he's our leader. Did he do anything? Well, don't, don't all leaders do things wrong? Yes, but do you have anything bad to say about him? Well, he's like your George Washington. No, a little different. I couldn't get anybody to say anything bad about him or about the system of government. There was a wholesale commitment to it, even among people you'd think would uh, have learned enough to know better. And I know a lot of them knew, but knowing isn't enough. You need to rethink all your fundamental assumptions and commitments to get a new way of thinking. And it doesn't matter if it's bad or good government. And it, the fascinating thing about that, that uh, whole situation over there is Red Square where we went, you can go see Mao's dead body that was poorly preserved when he died. 
And the reality that this great man is decomposing before the eyes of the nation doesn't seem to affect the messianic allure he still has. Do you know there are actually two Mao bodies? Because he needs so much upkeep as he rots in front of the nation that they wheel out the body and bring in a fake one while they're working on the real one. I thought, what an amazing image that the one who led the way in the hope is, is dead and decomposing before their eyes. And I thought, oh, no one needs to touch up Jesus' body. He rose from the dead by his own power and authority and never to die again. He doesn't have the problem of Mao. And and it doesn't matter if it's a a really harmful system like communism, which tries to be anti-God and anti-religion, but if you really study it, thinking like that becomes very messianic and utopian and in many ways a religion in itself. And even a a good government like ours that even has influence of Christian thinking, which is a good thing, and then we want that, right? But if we ever put our hope ultimately in even a good political system, we'll be bitterly disappointed. Maybe right now our country's exhibit A of that very thing. Because even that good system is still filled with sinful people. Oh, we need to be good stewards of our political privileges that we may have. But we need not fear that the political solution is showing chinks in the armor. We should know that ahead of time. The political solution is never the solution. We want to be responsible citizens and care about political realities that can have untold effects of good or bad. And we need to care about it and be invested in it. But lest you think that's the ultimate answer, It's not. What else could we depend on? Well, we see in our story there's a dependence on religion. The religious leaders are the ones leading the way in the error. Religion or piety is what they're depending upon. They take great pride in how religious they are, how pious they are. And this is an insidious evil because it looks so good on the surface. Because religion and piety has a very important role to play in being faithful people of God pursuing holiness, but disconnected from the gospel, from the grace of God in Christ, it can become a great evil that actually feeds a self-righteousness that's deadly. More more deadly than, than even just gross immorality. Sometimes I wonder if the Vatican's worse than Vegas. Or if any religious center that tries to help us become more faithful, holy people can lend itself to a way of thinking that makes it about what I do, not what God has done for me. Do you think religion's the answer? Do you think doing the right things is the answer? I just had a conversation with a family friend. For She's been a friend of our family for over 70 years, this woman. And she was raised in a dutifully religious home. And she said to me last week when I was talking to her, uh, she said, oh man, I went to Mass last week. 
And because of his accent, I couldn't understand a word the priest was saying and I was sitting there thinking, man, I hope I still get credit for being in church this week. And I th- it opened up a great opportunity. I said, get credit? I know her mother is an, was an extremely taskmaster, demanding woman. And I said, I know your mother was demanding first and foremost, but you've got to see God as extravagantly gracious to get him right. She had tears in her eyes, hearing the gospel in that way. Yeah, religion will not do it. Uh, My dear friend Jack Mitchell, I know some of you know Jack. He and his wife Karen have been mostly involved in the Fullerton congregation, but Jack died Tuesday. Uh, Not much longer than a year after his brother Chris died, his younger brother Chris died last year. And Jack's got a glorious story. He's raised in the Pacific Northwest, and he's raised in a Mormon context where it's very much about what you do. And then he met Karen, who was a devout Roman Catholic, and, and she did not understand the gospel of grace in that context. I realize there are some Roman Catholics who do, but she didn't. She didn't understand that gospel of grace. And, and so uh, Jack had a coworker as he's converting to become a Roman Catholic. He has a coworker who says, Jack, I hear you're going from Mormonism to Roman Catholicism. You know before a holy God, Jack, you need to be perfect. How are you going to do that? Will it be with more religion? And he said, Jack, you need to understand the gospel. And he taught it to him. And, and he, he said, read the Bible. And Jack started reading the Bible. And he started reading through the gospel of John. And he got to John chapter 6. And Jesus says in that passage, if any of you are hungry, come to me and you'll never hunger again. If any of you are thirsty, I will give you living water. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he says. And Jack says it's like the lights went on. It's like his soul was flooded with light and he realized I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and Jesus alone can meet that hunger and thirst. And he said the lights went on and he understood that Jesus was the only way. And he told his wife Karen about this and she thought he had lost his mind and that his friend was a false prophet that needed to get out of the picture. And he said, but please, Karen, please read the Bible. She said, okay. And he said, but don't read Romans. I read it and it's really deep and complex and and just let's wait on Romans. And she said, okay, I'll read Romans. (laughs) Because it must have something he doesn't want me to read that's going to validate what I think. So right to Romans she went. And she got to chapter 3 one night, nursing their little baby Heidi, their daughter, in the middle of the night. And she read this verse. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from observing the works of the law. And she said it was like a light went on that flooded her soul. 
And she realized that it's not what she does. It's what Jesus did for her. And she repented of her sins. And she trusted Jesus in saving faith and was so excited, she woke Jack up in the middle of the night to say, Jack, I've seen the light. And they never looked back. Three weeks later, Jack's brother Chris came to Christ. So at 3 a.m. this past Tuesday, when Jack was ushered into the presence of his Savior, he knew he was there with not a shred of his own righteousness. And as Karen bid him goodbye, she did it with that same assurance and hope of nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn, nothing left to demonstrate because Jesus has done all of that. See, that's the gospel. If you depend on religion, if you depend on your own righteousness, your righteous acts, you can never have the confidence that the gospel brings. It can't be politics, it can't be piety, it can't be religion, and it also can't be popular opinion. My goodness. Are you tired of polls? I don't mean Polish people. Those are my people. I mean polls, opinion polls. Every day, another poll. I wonder if that really stupid thing he said is going to hurt him in the polls. Oh, it didn't. I wonder if that really smart thing is going to help him in the polls. It hurt him. Oh, what's going on? And we just live day by day by the latest poll. The election's not even, it's more than a year away. <laughs> uh, yeah, poll, the latest opinion. We live and die by popular opinion polls. Starting in kindergarten, we so desperately want to be liked. I know kids would rather have most popular more than most likely to succeed in school. Harvard's nice with being liked. Ah, we're talking. We desperately want to be liked. Remember, Sally Field won some award for a movie she was in and she just cried and said, you really like me, you like me. And it was sort of cringeworthy because she was like this little kindergarten girl just seeking those affirmations. But she was speaking for all of us, wasn't she? You really, do you like me? We desperately want to be liked. Well, the reality is Jesus wasn't liked. He was hated. The crowds are screaming, crucify him. And Pilate follows their lead. The majority is never right because they're the majority, ever. A lot of the time, the majority is really wrong and the masses, I won't go there, the masses act like something that rhymes with masses. They, 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 they um, yeah, they're terribly wrong. We, we cannot base, and it's hard in a democracy where, well, that's what the vote says. Often, history tells us that the minority was seeing the truth, not the majority. Just like in our story. And Jesus isn't playing the popular vote game here. It was never his motive. It's Pilate's motive. 
It's the religious leader's motives. It's so often those Jesus levies his greatest accusations against who are driven by popularity. What does everybody seem to like? That's not how Christians think. It's how marketers think, who are the most brilliant people in our society. It's how they need to think. But it's not how Christians think. And so we've got to reorient our thinking on these things. Popular opinion opinion doesn't determine truth ever because it's popular. I've spent a lot of my life in academia, and there's no trump card. Academics throw at you more than... Well, you do know the majority of scholars believe this. Swagger is not just something on a football field, my friends. You do know that the majority of scholars, I mean, you hear that all the time. And sometimes in conferences I want to say, so, so, right? Remember Anne Rice? She wrote all these vampire novels, very successful, brilliant author of these vampire novels, she decided she wanted to write a book on Jesus. And so she studied Jesus for the first time in her life and had a conversion experience. And here's what she says about that that journey. Having started with all the skeptical critics whose take uh, I was assuming and that they were taking their cue from the earliest skeptical New Testament scholars of the Enlightenment, I expected to discover that their arguments would be frighteningly strong and that Christianity was at heart a kind of fraud. I'd have to end up compartmentalizing my mind with faith in one part of it and truth in another. (gasps) That's it right there. That's how people think about faith in God, in the Bible. You're Welcome to have your little compartment for that silly little thing you're doing with that faith thing. But I've got truth, and faith is what you have when you don't have truth. No, faith is what you have based on the truth you found. It's not what you have when you don't have truth, but that's the idea. Oh, you do that faith thing over there in a corner, but please don't talk to me about it as if it actually has relevance for anybody but you in your little local narrative over there. But no, she's saying, I thought that's how it was going to have to be. If I was going to have some sort of faith, it needed to be in its own little private compartment. And then she says this. What would I write about my Jesus? I had no idea, but the prospects were interesting. Surely he had to be liberal, married, have children, be homosexual, and who knew what else? But I must do my research before I wrote one word. What gradually became clear to me was that many of the skeptical arguments were not eloquent elegant. They were arguments about Jesus that were full of conjecture. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Absurd conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. In some, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified by nobody and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity and who would be horrified by it if he knew about it, The whole picture, which had been floated to me in my liberal circles I had frequented for 30 years as an atheist, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I had ever seen. And I had also sensed something else. Many of these scholars, scholars who apparently devoted their life to the New Testament study, disliked Jesus very much. Some pitied him as a hopeless failure. Others sneered at him and some felt outright contempt. I'd never come across this kind of emotion in any other field of research. She goes on to say, people in in Elizabethan Elizabethan studies don't do it to undermine the literature and, and despise Elizabeth. 
No, even if they notice the flaws, there's a championing of the goodness of this thing. And she said, I noticed something I'd never seen before. They don't like Jesus. They don't, they, about Elizabeth, they don't make snickering remarks about her or spend their careers trying to pick apart her historical reputation. But there are New Testament scholars who detest and despise Jesus Christ. Of course, we all benefit from, uh, from freedom in the academic community and from the enormous size of biblical studies today. I'm not arguing for censorship, but maybe I am arguing for sensitivity on the part of those who read these books. Maybe I'm arguing for a little wariness when it comes to the field in general. What looks like solid ground is not solid ground at all. And at my state university, where I didn't have one theist professor, where I was for five years as a philosophy major, I found this to be true. And as I continued to study throughout my days, I found amazing preconceived ideas is the starting point of all the other ideas. Don't be intimidated by someone saying, well, you know, everybody believes this. It's amazing how often we hear Christians asked, you know you're on the wrong side of history. You know the popular opinion's going in the other way from where you are. What are you going to do about it? To which we should say, be faithful and loving in the midst of all of it. Since when do we put our fingers to the air seeing where the breeze happens to be blowing today? The crowd in our story is very wrong. We need to get used to that. Jesus said, the world's going to hate you just like it hated me. Just know that's part of the deal. And get ready. Well, politics, piety, popular opinion polls, and immorality. They wanted Barabbas, not Jesus. Barabbas was a murderer. He was a terrorist. He was trying to undermine the government. He was a murderer and a robber, we're also told. He was a convict. He deserved a cross. (laughs) And that's who they chose instead of Jesus, the only righteous man who ever lived. So politics isn't the ultimate solution. Piety isn't. Popular opinion isn't, and neither is just immorality, sin. Sin never comes through. Taking matters into your own hands of whatever it is in your life and going in the ways your immorality would have you go is never going to work. They like that solution. They like the terrorists more than the Savior. That's who they wanted. And none of that's going to work. It's got to be the Redeemer. We've got to know the Redeemer. And um, Alex Thomas, not Alex Thomas, he's a football player from my old high school. Um, Derek Thomas uh, had an excellent way of, I think, summarizing what we see of the Savior, of the Redeemer in this passage. And it's uh, the silent lamb, the substitute Christ, and the suffering Savior. Uh, let's think about this. The first thing is he's the silent lamb. Lamb, I was tempted to call this sermon the silence of the lamb. (laughs) But I didn't want you to think of Anthony Hopkins instead of Jesus. So, the silent lamb. Pilate is staggered by Jesus' silence, his refusal to defend himself. Aren't you going to say anything? Pilate has come to realize Jesus is innocent, and he doesn't know why Jesus isn't making his case. He can see it. Come on, Jesus. Give me something to work with here. 
You're just shutting your mouth? Why would Jesus do that? Because he won the battle in the garden. He knew the king has a cross. And he knows that even though there's great evil in these sinful, murderous actions, it's all happening according to God's sovereign goodness. If you want to know Jesus, you read the Bible, and you realize that the Old Testament prepares you for the revelation of Jesus we find in the Gospels. And then the book of Acts proclaims that revelation. And then the epistles, the letters that follow, they explain the proclamation. That's why don't trust someone when they say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian. I just believe in the words of Jesus. No, you need the whole counsel of God's word to get it right. Jesus was not crucified for the Sermon on the Mount. He was not crucified for his ethics. He was crucified for who he proclaimed himself to be and the implications he believed that had. And until you get the whole Bible, you don't get that. And so when we see Jesus in the Bible, we see the Old Testament telling us that there's going to come a Messiah and he is going to be handed over and killed. That word in verse 1, and that term in verse 1 and in verse 15, he handed him over, the leaders hand him over to Pilate, Pilate hands him over, delivers him over to be killed. That's a very important concept because we see this handing over. We see the Messiah promised in the Old Testament is being handed over. We see in the gospel as we're seeing today, Jesus being handed over. We see in Acts, Peter preached the gospel and he tells the religious leaders that this Jesus, you handed over to be crucified. And then he says this, and all this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Unrighteous, wicked men accomplish this. They're responsible for that. They're accountable for that sin. But we see God's sovereign hand of goodness in all of it. And then when Paul is preaching the gospel in Romans uh, what, what does he say about this handing over idea? Listen to Romans 4.24. This righteousness Abraham had by faith, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was handed over, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He didn't defend himself. He, he didn't demand his vindication, his rights, that his glory be recognized and displayed. He was so strong, he could be weak. He was so mighty that frailty was something he embraced. Suffering was something he welcomed because of his strength. Well, this is not how the world thinks. Uh, when we had won uh, the War of Independence... <laughs> King George's portrait artist, who was an American, told him that Washington was planning to go back to farming after the war and after the independence was established. King George didn't believe it. He said, if George Washington walks away from what he's got right now and goes back to the farm, he's the greatest man on earth. <laughs> Who would walk away from that sort of power and prestige and authority and heroic identity? Washington did. But he's just following the path of a humble confidence that Jesus had. Confidence in what? 
in God's sovereign goodness. His wisdom that he could believe that when he trusted God the Father with his soul, with his life, with his suffering, it's all going to be just fine. And you can rest no matter what comes your way. And so we've got the silent lamb and we've got the substitute Christ. He's the substitute lamb too. Can you imagine Barabbas spending the rest of his life knowing that he should have been on that middle cross. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a robber. Who was on the either side of Jesus? Robbers. Jesus, the innocent man's in the middle, and the robbers are on either side. Barabbas knew he should be on that cross. I have no idea. We don't know if Barabbas is in heaven. We don't know if he made these conclusions. But my, what if he went to the crucifixion and, and had this sense of Jesus truly took his place? Barabbas deserved to be punished and die for his sins. Jesus didn't, and Jesus ended up there instead. This is a silent uh, sacrificial lamb, and it's a, he, he's a substitute lamb. This is an amazing truth. This is the very heart of the gospel. Jesus in our place. He took our place, the just for the unjust. That's what happens. In the glorious transaction of Jesus, our substitute, everything changes. And in this substitution is suffering. Substitution and suffering go hand in hand. The wages of sin is death. Before a holy God, rebellious insurrectionists, sinners, should be punished and pay for their sin. We should be spit upon. We should be punished. I know that's a really hard sell in our culture with this constant positive self-esteem. But the Bible doesn't pull any punches on the state of our sinful condition. We are the ones who should be spit upon. Now, who's the question? Who's going to mock us? In order to mock, you need to have a sense of superiority. No one has the right to mock any other human. God does have that right. Actually, God does mock foolishness and folly in the Bible. But that's not the end of the story. At the end of the story, God turns that mocking on himself. The punishment we should have had is put on the divine son. He's mocked instead of us. He, he's punished instead of us. He dies instead of us. It's an amazing transaction that takes place. He's cursed so we can be blessed. He's forsaken so we can be adopted. He is beaten so we can be healed. He doesn't defend himself so that he can be our defense attorney. He becomes the advocate because he doesn't advocate for himself. He lets this human course run its course right to a cross. That's the astounding truth of the gospel, that the silent lamb is the substitute lamb and the suffering lamb. Do you remember the image and the curse of thorns? Do you remember that 
the effect of God's judgment of our sin is life will now be filled with thorns and thistles. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus has thorns pressed into his head that cause him to bleed in his punishment. He's bearing the curse for us. He's taking our place and you must believe that we really needed him to. That we just don't need a little tweaking or a little more time, or uh, better parents than we had, or a more understanding teacher, or whatever it is. No, we need a Savior. Please relinquish any human means of that salvation and go to the Savior. He's the only one who can really save. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. You know that hymn, O sacred head now wounded, it just gets right at the heart of what we're talking about. What thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe to me thy grace. My burden in thy passion, Lord, thou hast borne for me, for it was my transgression which brought this woe on thee. I cast me down before thee, wrath were my rightful lot. Have mercy, I implore thee, Redeemer, spurn we not." Oh, we are able to rest in God's sovereign goodness realizing that Jesus took our place. Do you remember in Matthew's account of this story, Pilate actually does something in his image of refusing to take responsibility for about what's about to happen to Jesus. He knows he's innocent, but he still does something he knows is wrong. Remember what he does in Matthew's gospel? He says, I wash my hands of this man. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. Now take him away. Pilate thought he could live in uh, passive coexistence with Jesus, a, a Swiss neutrality with him. No, no, you can't do that with Jesus. If Jesus made anything clear, it's that you can't just sort of uh, go along with Jesus, think he's fine, a nice moral teacher. No, he draws a line in the sand constantly. It says either I'm Lord of all or not at all. It's not me as a self-help coach or a great moral teacher or somebody to help you out when you need it or can't find your keys. No, I'm the savior of the world, the master of the universe. There's no washing your hands. What you need is his broken body and shed blood. You, you need the bread, not the bowl. Thinking you can somehow relinquish yourself of needing to make a call or needing to identify yourself with him or needing to have some sort of responsibility for what you do with Jesus. Pilate doesn't get to do that, and neither do you. You need his body and blood. That's what you need. And when you trust Jesus, when you say, not my self-righteousness, no human efforts, but you, what you did for me on that cross, trusting in you, not myself, in saving faith, that changes everything. And here's the astounding thing. When that happens, this bowl that was a way of trying to be neutral with Jesus. You know, the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right by me. And some people like that song. It really annoys me. He's not just all right with you. Well, that's nice. What do you do with Jesus? I like the Doobie Brothers, but that song just is so tepid. 
But you know what happens? When, when you see Jesus according to his body and blood as the savior of you and the world, well, now this bowl can become something that's not just neutrality with Jesus, but a means of actually being like Jesus. You can, trusting Christ, start to love people and serve them and be a foot-washing servant like Jesus. And now this bowl isn't a neutrality with Jesus. It, it can become a means. Your life can become a means of washing people's feet and serving people, even your enemies. What did Jesus say? Don't be surprised when people speak evil against you and revile you. Don't, don't revile back, but bless them because they spoke evil against me. That's why Peter, the one who took out the sword, you know what Peter says? He says, don't return evil for evil. But when evil happens, return it with good. See, we can become people who look like Jesus and serve people because we depend on him and we start to look like him. Lord, help us to be servant-hearted, Christ-like people because we're depending on him. Lord, for anyone here this morning who has never trusted Christ, who's never turned from their human effort, whatever that looks like, to the only Savior and Redeemer, Jesus, I pray that this would be the morning, that they wouldn't leave here this morning without talking to me or someone else and understanding for the first time what this means. Lord, for those of us who have trusted you, I pray that we would be turning from those human means to the only Savior and depending on you to change our hearts, our minds, and our lives. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.